0: And then once you finish doing that, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses. At least we're going to start with two verses. That's verse 24 and 25 this morning. So we are in our third week of our series entitled, Making Sense of Our Sexuality. And so we've been walking through these weeks and talking about the subject that makes most of us uncomfortable, and it's the topic that many times the church never really deals with honestly, and so we know because of the culture we live in and because of really, I think, the crisis within the church, we need to have an honest conversation conversation about sexuality. So a couple weeks ago, if you weren't here, to kind of catch you up a little bit. We talked about the foundation of our sexuality and the context that God created, which we'll revisit a little bit this morning. And then last week, we talked about the confusion in our sexuality, so we talked about uh, homosexuality sexuality, and we talked about how we navigate sexual sin in our lives and how we respond to people navigating that in their lives with compassion and understanding as Jesus did. And so then today we're going to talk about the corruption of our sexuality, and we'll talk a little bit about how we take this beautiful thing that God has given to us, and I've said this each week, and that is sex is good because sex is from God, but we have a tendency to take what God gives us and we think somehow we can do it better. So we try to improve on it, we try to change it, we end up corrupting it, and we end up making it something that God never wanted it to be in our lives, which is a place of pain or confusion or frustration or disappointment. And so this morning we want to talk about that. As I've mentioned each week, definitely today too, a PG-13 message for sure. So if you have younger kids under the age of 13 and they're not in their classes yet, please take them now because, again, I don't want to explain what I'm going to explain to your kids. I want you to explain to your kids what we're going to talk about this morning because it's extremely important. Remember kind of the, the tension of what, we, what we're in sometimes and we don't, we don't take the time to talk about this. We go to one of two extremes. We go to the prudish side, which is I don't have any idea about sexuality or sex or anything like that because in my household it was a place of shame and embarrassment, so we didn't talk about it. Or you go to the other extreme, which is I was never given any categories of how to handle it, so I become promiscuous. I try to figure it out on my own, and then I find myself in trouble and not understanding how to navigate the challenges I've created. We want to make sure that we have a balanced conversation about sexuality because it's something that all of us— have to deal with as being humans in our life, and so this morning we're going to talk about what happens over time, sometimes in our own understanding of our sexuality and how it gets twisted and corrupted. And it's something that happens slowly in our own minds and in the culture we live in. It kind of saturates who we are. One of the houses that we lived in when we moved in, uh, the the people who obviously lived there before us wanted to have privacy. From the neighbors, so they planted, I think they were some kind of a, a spruce, or I'm not quite sure the exact tree, but anyway, they lined the property, really tall vertical trees and 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 so there was kind of this wall between us and our neighbors. But when we first moved into the house, I, rem- I remember looking at one of the one of the like the first tree in the row had this little section it was maybe like that big that just kind of was dead. The rest of it was green and tall, and all the other trees were and it created this barrier. And I remember just kind of noting that, but not really thinking anything of that. And after after the weeks went on, that little brown patch on the tree started to get bigger and bigger, and it started to stretch up and down the trunk of the tree. And then before I knew it, it was like a couple months went by, and that tree was completely dead. I mean, and and it was next to all these other trees that were alive, and, and we were in Oregon, so you know it got enough water, and so there was plenty for it to grow. And so as I watched that, that was strange. And so I remember when that died, I pulled that tree out, thinking, well, you don't need a dead tree there. And so then as I pulled that tree out, I realized that as it was touching the next tree, that that tree where the other tree was touching was also brown. And then I watched over the next week how that tree started to turn brown, and then the next tree started to turn brown. And before you know it, almost all the way down the line, and what we obviously didn't know, I'm not an arborist, so I don't understand trees very well. Some, the first tree was diseased, and because it was next to the other tree, that tree became diseased. And then before you know it, it influenced the entire line of trees that we had to pull out, because they all died. And sometimes we don't realize in our understanding of sexuality, there's something that happens that gets skewed or corrupted in our understanding. And it's this little area that doesn't bring life like sex is supposed to bring in our culture. The word is used, para, Hebrew, in, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, that God says, be fruitful and multiply. He says, flourish. And this is in the context of sex. And He's saying this is part of human flourishing. It should be a good thing, but somehow... It gets corrupted, and then what happens is it begins to poison every aspect of our sexuality, and then it reaches outside that and begins to corrupt other things outside our sexuality. That's why this morning as we talk about what we're going to talk about, I want to make sure that this, this what we're going to talk about, and the tone of what we were going to talk about can somehow feel like oh man, I feel horrible because I'm struggling in that area and I don't think I can even break free from it and everybody's looking at me because everybody knows I have that issue and I feel so uncomfortable. You don't have to raise your hand if that's you because that's all of us. But I want you to hear something. What the enemy loves to do when we talk about things that we're struggling with is he loves to turn up the shame factor on us. He wants the noise in our head to kind of blurt out what God is trying to say to us about something important in our life. Because God doesn't come to bring, what, condemnation and judgment. He comes to bring grace, forgiveness, and healing in our lives. And that's the voice that we need to hear this morning when we talk about some areas that can be difficult to talk about. But before we talk about some of the specific ways that we've kind of corrupted our understanding of sexuality, I want to start it kind of again with the context that God's created us to understand, to understand healthy sexual intimacy, which is a little bit of review from a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's important. We have to start there because it's starting there that helps us to understand again, why has God given us this thing called sex, and why is it actually good? So three things I want to highlight are out of Genesis chapter 2. Let me read verses 24 and 25. Says that this is, or that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. So, in those couple verses, there's this context that God's outlining for all of us to understand of what healthy sexuality looks like, what it's supposed to look like in this context between a husband and a wife, in the context of this thing called marriage. So i want to talk a little bit about the specifics of what that means so the context of our sexuality the way it was originally intended the first thing is this it comes in the context of monogamy and that means only for you with your spouse that's what you're saying monogamy meaning that it's just a husband and a wife it's not three people it's not five people it's not ten people it's monogamous it's just these just two people together That's the way that God originally intended. It says that in verse 24, "...they became one flesh." They, there was this, There's this deep connection that's a direct reference to uh, sexual intimacy within the context of marriage where there's this one flesh reality, which is monogamous. Now, some people will say, well, I read the Bible, and there's polygamy all over the Old Testament. And there is, but you have to understand, when you read through the Scriptures, just because something is included in the Scriptures and God doesn't necessarily come right out and condemn it doesn't necessarily mean that He's condoning it. Because what he does is he doesn't say, okay, here's all the reasons of why this is wrong, but usually what God does is says, this is the right thing, and everything else that falls outside the context of this misses the mark of what I purpose for your life. The same thing is true with, with marriage being monogamous. It's so important. And the reason why is that this, this monogamy is that it's, it's something that is given to a husband and a wife that is not intended to be shared with anybody else. It can't be. And sometimes we think that it's okay, and it, and it can be. And remember, as I'm talking about this already, as I'm going to go into this, I know the shame factor in many is kind of going up. Listen, God redeems our broken sexuality. And so we don't hear shame and guilt and condemnation here, that there's hope for me that even though I'm dealing with this, God can bring me to a place of freedom and wholeness in my life. And I've shared this before, and I've shared this with Courtney and Jordan, especially with with, with teenagers, and, and there's, they're growing up and they're navigating this in, in their life, is that this, this thing called monogamy is so important because God has given you a thing called virginity that He gave to you as a gift to give to one person in your life. It is your spouse. That's what He gave it for and I use the analogy because for me when I was growing up Tonka trucks were a big thing Like, like this was like before like the wave of electronics you know but like Tonkas were like when I was really young like everybody had like a big Tonka truck that you could push around and get it dirty and everything and so if I got invited to a birthday party and I wanted to buy like the best gift for my friend I would buy a Tonka truck Now, if I bought a friend a Tonka truck and his birthday was a week away, and then I brought it home and I wrapped it up and set it there waiting for the birthday to come, but then one of the next day after I bought it, one of my other friends comes over, and he really likes Tonka trucks, and I know what I just bought my other friend, and I know what's in that package, and I think to myself, man, it would be really fun, fun to play with this friend with the Tonka truck, so let's just unwrap it, and we'll play with it a little bit. It won't get messed up. I'll put it back in the package. I'll rewrap it, and my friend will never know. He'll think it's new. So my other friend comes over, we unwrap it, we play with it for a little while. It gets a little dirty, but a little water takes it off. It looks still pretty new, so I put it back in the box. It looks like it'll be okay. Put it back on the shelf, and I wait. Then the next day comes, and another friend comes over, and he likes Tonka trucks too. Like, man, we could do, I did it once, I could do it again. So I unwrap it, and we play again, but this time there's a big old scuff on the side of it, and I can't get the scuff off. It's not mud. It's like scratched, but I'd really try real hard, but I think, ah, you know, it'll be okay. So I stick it back in the box, but I reverse it so that the scratch is on the other side so no one will know, and I wrap it back up, and I set it on the shelf. And then the third day, another friend comes over, and he likes Tonka trucks, and I'm like, I can't, you know, I said yes to the first two. I can't say no to the third guy, right? So we unwrap it. This time, one of the wheels falls off so I try to figure out there is no other side to go to so I got a scratch on one side and a wheel falling off the other side so I shove it back in the box and I wrap it up and I think I hope he doesn't know and then I show up to the party what do you think he's going to do when he opens it he's going to go wow thanks for the brand new Tonka truck no he's going to go what happened and then I'm left to explain now hear me I don't say that to guilt to put guilt or shame on anyone but you need to to understand it's the same with our virginity this is what God gives now hear this if you've given that away already, God can redeem that in your life and even in the relationship that you may be in right now where you gave it away before the context of marriage. God can redeem those things to make it right because it's a gift that God wants you to give and he wants you to give it in the way he intended. So the first thing to understand is there's this, this concept of monogamy. It's just, it's, it's just only for you. Nobody else. Nobody else gets it. Second thing, look at verse 25. The context of our sexuality is not only monogamy, It's intimacy. This is only with you. So it says in verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is such a powerful picture of what God intends for marriage, especially in the context of our healthy sexuality with our our spouse. So understand this. So Adam and Eve, this is before sin enters the equation. We, We don't like to talk about this. They were totally naked. I mean, and clothes weren't even a part of the the dialogue. They didn't have coals down the street that they could go pick up something. They didn't have clothes. Why? And they didn't need clothes. Why did they not need clothes? Because there was no shame. There was nothing to hide. And at this point in the story, from what we can pick up, there were no other people. So there are no other people to hide from. It's just Adam and Eve by themselves, naked, without shame, which is the definition of intimacy. To be fully known and to fully know somebody else. And that is given for a husband and a wife only to share with each other. And the only way you can experience true intimacy is when that is only expressed in the context of your relationship with your spouse because the moment you share that with somebody else is the moment you lose intimacy. And so many times we strive for intimacy, but the problem is when we strive for intimacy, we want to have it with a bunch of different people, and you can't. Because what happens is the uniqueness of what you have in the context of a husband and wife in marriage When you step outside of that what was special and what makes it special is it's absolutely unique with nobody else Then if it comes with somebody else it loses its specialness It's like you know the person who really needs to be loved by people And because of that they go over the top to make sure everybody likes them And they always tell everybody you're my favorite You're my favorite friend You know, you're my favorite employer, you're my favorite this, and you hear him in a conversation saying something like, you're my favorite friend. Five minutes later, over here, I'm saying another person, you're my favorite friend. How does that make you feel? Well, I thought I was your favorite. No, there's like 15 other favorites, too. So what does it do? It takes what's unique and special and intimate, and it makes it worthless, because it's not something that's shared just between the two of you. It's actually shared with everybody. And that's what God's explained with this context of our sexuality, is that He's created it to have this level of intimacy. And the only way intimacy happens is when it's just between the two of you. It's a special thing that God gives to you that you don't share with anybody else, and it makes it absolutely unique. And then there's a third context for our sexuality, and that is unity. That is only by you. Going back to verse 24, it says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. This is really important. Part of the reality of sexual intimacy in marriage is that it is part of the process that separates us from our family of origin or from our parents and binds us to our spouse, which is an extremely important and healthy process. Because you don't have to raise your hands, but all of us know, one time or another, when we got married, especially if you got married when you were younger, your parents always had some kind of reach into your relationship that created a little bit of tension of loyalty. You don't have to raise your hand, but all of us know how that works. So you're married now, but mom and dad still have an agenda for your life. Mom and dad still have an agenda for their holidays, for birthdays, for the traditions of your family part of the encounter of our sexual intimacy in marriage disconnects that bond with our parents and creates a bond and a loyalty with our spouse. It doesn't mean that we absolutely disregard our parents, but our loyalties shift to each other so that ultimately it isn't about what mom and dad want anymore. It's about what my spouse needs. Now, I haven't done a study on this, but but I could guess to say from my experience as a pastor in counseling that not always, but there are times when you're, if you're struggling in sexual intimacy in the early stages of your marriage, you also probably are struggling with boundaries with your parents because you haven't fully bonded yet. And you're still playing, like, ah, I don't want to disappoint my parents. And so you haven't fully bonded to your spouse yet, so there's this tension until finally you begin to express and experience true intimacy with your spouse, and there is this bond that's created, this, this unity that comes about in you, and because of that, there isn't a tension anymore. There isn't like, oh, I've got to, you know, especially, I mean, I know this is typical, but guys, it's always the mother-in-law, right? It's like, oh, she's always butting her nose, and by the way, my mother-in-law's here, and she's nothing like that, okay? <laughs> so... But it's that that kind of tension well if there's healthy sexual intimacy in a a relationship that begins to to even if if the parents are trying to weave their way into your relationship they can't get there why because you've left that what birthed you into the world and now you've bonded with the person that god's created you to be with and because of that now you have this unity so i wanted to begin with this because that is the context that god created and why is that important I think what we're gonna talk about in the next section here is really highlighting some of the areas where we've corrupted our sexuality. But, but why I start with that is because what we, and I mentioned this earlier, we have a tendency to do is we wanna know, God, give me all the do's and don'ts of sexuality. In fact, God mentioned everything that I shouldn't do so I know not to do it. But the Bible's not written that way. What God does is he, he holds up the standard and says, this is what I've created for you. This is what's good for you. This is what brings about flourishing. And so he says, if you focus on this, you don't have to worry about all of that. I heard a pastor explain it this way once. It's really good. He said, he goes, if I brought five women up on the stage and I wanted to identify to you who my wife was, he goes, I wouldn't spend any time telling you why the first four weren't my wife. He goes, I would just explain to you why the one was my wife, and I would tell you the physical characteristics or personality, so you would know who she is, not because by absence of, or by default, like, well, I guess it has to be her because she, it's not the other four. God does the same thing. He holds up the standard and says, this is what it is. It's a good thing. It's what I want you to have. But because of that, we also have to address for us, especially in our culture, some of the things that maybe are are points of corruption that have caused pain and confusion and frustration for us in our life. And so, uh, as I have been throughout this series, I'm going to be pretty frank and pretty honest about these things, but this is, I believe, is important for us to talk about. So, the corruption of sexuality, this is not not a comprehensive list, but I think general categories of areas where our mentality and our culture and even within the church has gotten skewed on our sexuality. So, the first point of corruption of sexuality is in the area of extramarital sex, which means... A sexual encounter, whether as full as intercourse to the point where you know you're having sexual feelings towards someone and you engage physically, outside the context of a husband and wife, in the context of marriage. Outside of that is extramarital. It's outside of that. There's a myth, and I will address each some myths as we go through this today. The, f- the myth about extramarital sex is this. It's just sex. What does it matter what two consenting adults do? heard that so many times. What does it matter? And in other words, what's it going to hurt? Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. He says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What is Paul saying? See, the, the act of sexual sin, of brokenness or corruption or sexuality, is more than just me going and robbing a bank. Because it is something that not only am I using my body to engage in, but I'm also inflicting it upon myself. Upon my own. The, the, the body, and especially the sexual act, is the most personal, intimate thing that any human being can have. So that's why Paul writes, listen, all, all other sins are outside the body, but sexual sin, it's against yourself. It's very, very personal, and that's why it's important that when we go outside this context of what God's created, we realize that we're not, it is hurting us, and it is hurting other people. It isn't just okay as long as it's two consenting adults because we're missing what God's purposed. There's a word that Paul uses, that the word he uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia, which is the same root word where we get pornography, which I'll talk about in a moment. It's any sexual activity outside the context of marriage. This is important. Why? Because whether you know it or not, God has created and designed you specifically to bond with your spouse, and he has actually built that into you down to the hormonal level that God has created you that way. There's actually, in the act, the sexual act, and in the the closeness and intimacy physically, it's higher in women, but it's also true in men, there's actually a hormone that is released called oxytocin. And that is the same hormone that that women release when they're breastfeeding and that's why I never get between a baby and her mom because she'll kill you. Because there's a bond. There's skin to skin releases this kind of this hormone and it's, it's higher levels in women but it's in men as well. So when you are in a sexual encounter with somebody there is this bonding hormone released between the two of you that whether you want to or not you are now bonded to each other. It's a chemical thing. It's down to the physiological of who we are. So we're bonded with each other. And that's why when we choose to have multiple sexual partners whether we want to or not We are always bonding ourselves to individuals We're leaving a piece of who we are behind every time and so when we try to move forward There's something that tends to even if it's an abusive relationship. It tends to pull us back Because what god had intended in the context of marriage is that you would be bound to your spouse Which is kind of people call it the faithfulness hormone. That's what it is it bonds you to your spouse so that you're, you're not drawn to anybody else, you're just drawn to your spouse. Why? Because God's created that, that, almost that chemical reaction between the two of you. And that's why extramarital sex can be so destructive to our lives, because we want to move on, but we can't, because we're bound to people. And so then when it happens over and over and over again, what ends, ends up happening is we become numb we struggle because we know that there's a part of us that's going to be left behind and so for some you don't even know how to engage sexually when you get married because there's this sense that I've already bonded with so many other people I can't bond with my spouse but you know God's grace can even touch down to the chemical level of who we are can bring healing and freedom for that and and forgiveness in our lives for those things so the first way that we kind of corrupt what God's intended is through extramarital sex second thing by the way these don't get any easier um, is pornography